we've been going through uh, my trip to Israel and kind of taking a day, and, and today we uh, is the sixth day that we were in Israel, and um, we went down through Samaria, and on this, this map, this is kind of a map of, of Israel like it would have been in the day of Jesus, and so I, we spent the first five days right in this area, and then the fifth day we were up here where, where I was talking about last Sunday, and then... Um, then we went from there down to Jerusalem and spent the rest of our time. So our sixth day was spent traveling down here, and we spent a lot of time right in this area, um, which today is the city of Nablus. Um, and Samaria, uh, back in the day of Jesus, would have been included Caesarea and Joppa and gone over to the Jordan River and kind of made a trapezoid shape here, um, including all this this area um, right there. Um, and then the next slide shows us some of the ancient ruins that we saw in the city of Samaria. Um, there is the area of Samaria, and then there's the city of Samaria. And so we were in the city of Samaria, and that is where King Amra, who was the father of King Ahab, and you probably remember King Ahab in the Bible as being one of the most wicked kings of Israel, but his father Amra was also wicked, and he lived about 800 BC. And this is the the temple that he built. What, or not not the temple, but the palace that he built. And so there's still the remains there in Samaria of that temple. And by the way, all of this is in the West Bank. Uh, we so we spent the day in Palestinian territory here. A lot, we were so fortunate because if we'd have gone a couple weeks later, we would have never been allowed in the West Bank because um, the turmoil and the tension had increased again. Uh, we got to see a lot of things that a lot of tour groups do not get to see just because we were able to go into the West Bank and into Palestinian territory. Um, Amra built a hill, um, or bought a hill, and uh, named it Samaria, and so it, it got that name for it, um, and he moved the capital there. Last week I told you that um, when, when Jeroboam became the, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, um, he, he moved the capital, or created the capital of Shechem. Well, every king moved the capital for a while, and then all of a sudden Amr became king, and he moved the capital here, and this is part of all of that structure that is left from 800 B.C. Um, in that area where his palace was and, and all of that and, and the Capitol building and all of that. And when he moved it there, it stayed there till up till the captivity when they moved, uh, the Babylonians came and took them into captivity. And then the next picture, um, you're probably getting tired. This probably is one of the last ones. Of, I don't know why I have so many pictures of theaters. There must have been something that intrigued me about that. But this is the theater of Samaria. And these are all original stone. There hasn't been anything redone or reworked here. And this is also from 800 uh, B.C. And, and all of that. But just amazing the, the theaters that uh, they had over there. And if you stood down here in this area and talked, anybody could hear you around there. Just the natural amphitheater effect was incredible. Well, I want to go back to the map. And um, as you pass through the region of Samaria here, Jews would not have gone this way. They would have either gone out here, most of them wouldn't have done that because of the distance, 
or they would have crossed the Jordan River and come down to Decapolis and Perea and then come back into Judea um, down here to avoid going through uh, Samaria. Um, but Abraham passed through here, um, and it was right at um, Shechem that he passed through, and God promised all this land to, to uh, Abraham. That's also where Jacob bought land. He bought land at Shechem and uh, dug a well uh, over there by Sychar. Um, and all of those dots are within like four or five miles of each other. Um, and then Joshua, when, when he called the Israelites together and he was ready to die, and he led Israel in, in uh, victory over all of this area, at the end of his life, he called all Israel, not to Jerusalem, but up here to Shechem, and they all came down to there for his farewell address. And so, because that was a kind of a more central location there. And then it was at Shechem that Rehoboam, when um, Solomon uh, was done his years, and, um, you know, Rehoboam was going to be the next king in line. And Rehoboam went and got, um, he didn't use the, the advice of the elders. He went with the advice of some young men that gave him bad advice, and they told him, when, when the Israelites came and says, will you reduce the amount of load on us? Because Solomon had been, he had taxed real heavy to build his great uh, kingdom and all of that and had worked the people real hard. And they wanted, they were hoping that the new king would, would relax. And Rehoboam came back to the people and he called them together at Shechem there. And all these Israelites, they came there and Rehoboam said, no, I will not. Uh, I will rule with an iron fist, and it will be harder on you than it was under my father Solomon. Um, he wanted to impress them with how how ruthless he was going to be compared to uh, Solomon. And so that's when the Israelites said, everyone to your tents, and they appointed their own king, Jeroboam, and so the Israelites took the northern part, and Rehoboam stayed down here in Judea. And then when the Israelites all sinned and they were taken off into captivity, one of the interesting things was is that the Babylonians, which were over here, brought into this area where they had taken Israelites out, they brought in pagan people with pagan gods. And the people that were left here that didn't get taken into captivity intermarried with them. And they kept some of their Jewish faith and adopt some of the pagan faith. And those were the people that became called Samaritans um, because they were considered half Jew and half Gentile. And as a result of that, when the Israelites came back from captivity, the in order to go up to the temple you were supposed to and serve as a priest, you were supposed to be able to prove your bloodline that was pure Jew. Well, none of these Samaritans could do that because they had all intermarried. And so they were not allowed to come down and fully involve themselves in worship. They could only be in the outskirts of the temple of Jerusalem. And so Jews up here and down here had no regard for the Samaritans at all. They kind of looked at them as a horrible cult and maybe even worse than pagans. And so they they just had nothing to do with them. So... Um, 
you know, you remember when Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they build, restart rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem and it says Sanballat and Tobiah from Samaria where they kept trying to cause trouble because they didn't want the temple rebuilt. It was a reminder to them that they couldn't go to it anyway. So they wanted to destroy it and they wanted to keep all their people worshiping at Mount Gerizim at this at this other place that they had designed for the Samaritans to worship. So now the Samaritans, they did a couple of things that Jews agreed with. They, they believed in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they believed that Moses was a prophet. But they believed that those were the only books that were inspired, and that Moses was the only inspired prophet. So they rejected all of the other prophets, they rejected everything after Deuteronomy. And so they didn't have a lot in common with Jews. And the Jews didn't believe that the Samaritans practiced the first five books very well anyway. <laughs> because, of course, they had added all of their own traditions in, into how you practice those five books. And the Samaritans didn't care about the Jewish traditions of hand washing and all that kind of stuff and in terms of how you do the first five books. The Samaritans had their own five ways or ways of doing those books. Now in Samaria, um, this is just a side note, but that is where there's a church there called the Church of St. John. And um, that tradition goes back to the 4th century that teaches that that is where the bones of John the Baptist are, that the disciples, his disciples came, took him there, and buried him there. And of course, like they've done with every other holy site in Israel, they built a humongous church on top of it. So you go down to the basement and you see this place that they believe the, the bones of John the Baptist are there. Now, moving up to the story of the, the Samaritan woman, a hundred years, 129 B.C., before Jesus came to the Samaritan woman, there was a Jewish ruler called Hyrcanus. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but you'll, get, you'll live through it if I'm saying it wrong. Hyrcanus had gone to Samaria with the military, with the Jewish military, and he completely destroyed Shechem and... Samaria, those, those two cities right there, Shechem and Samaria, they were the two main cities of Samaria. And then they went up on Mount Gerizim and totally destroyed the Samaritan temple, just obliterated it. So there was nothing left there for the Samaritans to worship. So you can imagine the stories and the animosity that keeps building between the Jews and the Samaritans. They've got a long history, centuries of it, but now there's this fairly recent history, and there is, I mean, the Jews and the Samaritans, they just don't get along, they don't see eye to eye, and they do everything they can to avoid each other. Now, at Sychar is where um, Jacob bought land and dug a well. And uh, this is one of those sites in Israel that everyone is fairly sure this is authentic. It's not too easy to move a well. <laughs> and it's one of those wells that's been there for a long time. And down through church history and all of that, everyone says that it was Jacob's well. 
And so, um, and, and that is in Nablus, uh, in the modern city of Nablus in the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. Now, the next picture is the church, um, the church of St. Fotina. And you ask, well, who was St. Fotina? Well, that's the Greek Orthodox name for the Samaritan woman. So if you ever want to know if she had a name, I don't know what her name really was, but tradition tells us that it is St. Fotina. And so you can call her Fotina. And so this is the Greek Orthodox Church of St. Fotina. And uh, down in the basement of that, several stories down, is Jacob's Well. And uh, by the way, the Russians also have their own name for the Samaritan woman, and the Russian name for her is Svetlana. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, Western culture doesn't do this, but when you get over to Eastern culture, they put a name with everything. So uh, Svetlana is in Russia is her name. Um, this church was finished in 2007. In 1927, there was a great earthquake that pretty much destroyed the Greek Orthodox Church before that. And so um, in the next picture, um, you'll see the main floor of, the, of that church, the St. Saint Fotina. And you'll notice, and I didn't get the picture low enough, but there aren't pews in there or chairs. And almost all Greek Orthodox churches, and a lot of the churches I saw over there, there isn't any. Because uh, coming and sitting and that kind of stuff isn't part of their culture. Uh, they may come and stand, and stand around an altar, or kneel, all kinds of things, but, but sitting is not there. There were some places, seats, hard benches around the outside of the building uh, for those that struggled. But that was it, and, and basically you walked around all these icons and candles and everything else that were kind of annoying to me, but they were very important uh, to the people over there. Uh, <laughs> I just saw a bunch of clutter in the church. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the next picture over here, this is Jacob's Well. Um, and again, has been documented down through the ages, and um, we dropped water down there, and it was amazing how long it took before we heard the splatter. Um, but in 1935, it was uh, 130 feet deep. It's shallower than that today just because of tourists dropping things down and, and all of that kind of stuff. But we did pull up a bucket of water, a couple buckets of water. And this is the priest um, who has spent his whole life as priest of this of this church, um, raising money, he's a very short man uh, and incredibly revered and loved by the people um, in that community. Um, he has traveled nationwide, especially in the Eastern cultures, raising money for this church and did all the raising the money. Uh, spent his whole life doing it, and then oversaw the building and the architecture of the building. And uh, pretty, pretty incredible guy. So down to the scripture today. Um, now, Jesus, it says, he had to go through Samaria. Now, there were other ways. So why does it say he had to go through Samaria? Because he wanted to reach this lady. He had to go through there in an unconventional, um, unusual path 
to make an unusual connection with someone that culture of the day said, no, you don't go talk to her. Um, Too often, we fail to make those connections. We would be like the Jews. We don't make connections because we dislike the way they live and we dislike their lifestyle and we dislike all of that. And so pretty soon we dislike the person. Jesus was able to dislike the belief structure, the behavior structure of the Samaritans and still love the Samaritan woman. And he walked right through and went down there uh, to Sychar, this plot of ground that Jacob had given to his family. And the Samaritan woman comes to, to there at noon where Jesus is already there at the well. Now the interesting thing is that Samaritans had this history where they went early in the morning to draw water and they went late in the evening to draw water because it was cool. Who wants to carry water in the heat of the day. So the Samaritan woman, who is this despised woman, even in her own culture, she feels so despised that she doesn't go to draw water in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. She goes during the heat of the day at noon. So there won't be other people around to harass her or anything else. And she gets to the well and there's this Jew sitting there. And Jesus says to her, he speaks to her. He says, will you give me a drink? His disciples had left. He's there by himself. And the woman starts to educate Jesus. She says, you know, sir, that I am a woman. And you are a man. And men are not supposed to talk to women when their husbands are not present. Especially Jews. (laughs) So she tells him that. She educates him. And Jesus says, well, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink of living water. And I would give it to you. And she proceeds then to educate him again uh, as we get to the next passage. But I want, I want to back up here and look at this a little bit more. I heard John Maxwell say recently that he believes the Christian church is going to have to make a decision as to whether we are going to connect with people enough to share the gospel or if we are going to condemn people and never get around to sharing the gospel with them. Jesus connected with this woman and he let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. The difference is condemnation never gives people hope. The conviction of the Holy Spirit always gives hope for the future. So Jesus shows up. He is thirsty. He is weary. He's tired. His humanity is coming through during the hottest part of the day. And she lays out these facts and Jesus ignores her response that, you know, he shouldn't be talking to her and she is a Samaritan after all and and all of that. And he just piques her interest in living water. 
Now I want you to notice one of the other things Jesus does here. We talked about sharing our faith in Sunday school this morning, and they presented three different paths to do that. Jesus presents a different path every time he shares the gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus. Did he ever mention living water? No. He talks to him about being born again. With a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water, Jesus talks to her about living water. And as you go through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus addressing people using whatever it is in front of him to talk about the Gospel. A lot of times we get a little bit hung up because we might forget a step or this or or sharing it just right. And Jesus says, just relax and use life as it's presented to you and find some way to connect the gospel in with what is happening right then and there in that person's life. That's the way Jesus shared the gospel. He talks to Nicodemus about being born again and about this woman with about living water. So the woman says to Jesus, she's educating Jesus again because he just doesn't seem to be you know, too aware. She says, you're now asking me, you're, you want me, you want to give me living water. If you notice Jesus, you don't have a pail. I'm the one with a pail. You were the one that asked me for water to drink. Um, Jesus you, you should not be um, telling me to give, uh, to ask you for water. So then she says, she starts out thinking, Jesus is just a man, a Jew. She says, you, are you more than our father Jacob? She's starting to think more of this Jesus guy, and she says, are you more, are you greater than Jacob was? He drank from this well, and both Jews and Samaritans believe in Jacob and all of that. And she's thinking that he's maybe more than a Jewish man. And, and that's when Jesus says, well, if you want living water, you won't really find that living water in the well. <laughs> that living water is in me. But she thinks, Jesus says, springs of living water would flow up in her if, if she could have his water. And so she says to him, give me this water. She's kind of tired of going out in the heat of the day to draw water and haul it all the way back home. And she thinks, if he can do that, if he can make me have water all the time and I won't have to go out in the heat of the day um, all, all by myself to get water, that would be awesome. And then Jesus says this really strange thing. He says, go call your husband and come back. <laughs> and she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, yes, you're right. You you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five and now you're living with someone. And what you have said is just quite true. And then the woman says, ah, maybe greater than a prophet, maybe greater than Jacob, maybe you are a prophet as well. <laughs> I can see this. Um, you seem to know a lot about me. And so she's not real sure with Jesus' response there. Um, she knows he's more than an ordinary man. 
But she decides, I don't really want to go there and really talk about my lifestyle and all of that. So she says, I'm going to have a conversation with him about Mount Gerizim. She says, you Jews believe that we ought to worship at Jerusalem. But we Samaritans believe that we ought to worship at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus starts talking to her and he says, woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, not on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. I want you to see there just how clear Jesus was in in saying politely what you believe is wrong. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know very politely told her that what she believed was wrong and still kept that connection with her. Um, Then he says, Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying that the kind of worshiper that God desires is one that has a spiritual connection with him and also recognizes that there is absolute truth in the world and that God establishes that absolute truth. And if there is truth, then we have to live by it. See, our American culture of Christianity is to just as long as I believe something, that's good enough. That is good enough for us. That's not good enough for God. The kind of worshipers the Father seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth, who live out the truth of Scripture, who live out what the Bible declares. And so... He he says this to her, and she still isn't very convinced about what Jesus said. And so she says, well, one thing we do agree on for sure is that there is a Messiah coming, and I believe that when he gets here, he'll explain all of this to me. And you don't have to explain much more to me. (laughs) And about that time, Jesus, uh, Jesus declares to her, oh no, The Messiah has come, and I am him. I am the Messiah. And this is very rare. For this early, Jesus has not declared himself to be Messiah this early in his ministry. But here to the Samaritan woman, he declares himself and he tells her, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one you've been waiting for. Jesus' disciples who have gone off to buy food and different things, they return and they are surprised because they know the culture. They, they've they been uncomfortable with this whole trip through Samaria. They could have gone around and avoided it, but they follow Jesus and they come back and they find Jesus, of all things, talking with a Gentile Samaritan woman. <laughs> and they're thinking, what is he doing? What What is it he needs? What? Can't we provide that instead of him getting it from her? Um, But they don't say anything. And um, the Samaritan woman sees them and she leaves her jar that she came to take water home and she goes back to the village. 
And, um, and she goes back and tells him, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. Now the disciples, you know, they're, they're just puzzled by all of that. But when, while she's gone, the disciples urge him and they say, Rabbi, you need to eat something. And Jesus looks at them and plays some games with them, just like he had uh, with, with the Samaritan woman. He says, I already have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And so the disciples are thinking, well, who fed him? Who brought something to him? And surely he didn't eat from the Samaritan woman. Um, and, you know, they've got all these questions going on. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And I must finish his work. And what he was saying there is that his food was to, draw, to walk down through Samaria and to reach people in Samaria that they would never want to reach. He said, it's still four months until harvest. Um, I tell you, look out. Look out at the fields. They are white unto harvest. They are ripe unto harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and the harvest a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, the one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And so Jesus is dealing with his disciples there and he wants them to see a harvest that they could not see before that. They only saw a harvest up in Israel and they saw a harvest down here in Judea, but they could not see the harvest in Samaria. And Jesus saw it, and he wanted them to see it. And you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the Holy Spirit sends the church out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Samaritans, they come back, and they see Jesus, and they convince him to stay and teach them for two days. And at the end of that, the Samaritans say to him, you are the savior of the whole world. Jesus had been in, was going to Jerusalem, had been in Judea, was in Samaria, and the Samaritans are going to take the gospel around the world. God calls us to look for the harvest in unexpected places among the least, the lost, the last, the lonely. And he wants us to turn everyday opportunities, everyday encounters into spiritual opportunities. Now, church tradition tells us that this Samaritan woman, Svetlana or whatever her name was, that she was flayed, whipped until her skin was ripped off of her by the Emperor Nero, that she was buried in a well, that he threw her down probably because she had been converted at a well. We don't know. But I know this about the Samaritan woman. If that, is, if that tradition is right, her life was so radically changed by Jesus that she told other people in her community about Jesus. And she was gladly willing to die for her faith, suffer and die as a martyr for her faith. There are people around us 
around Johnson Corners, around McKinsey County that need Jesus. And we need to pray and ask God to help us to go out of our comfort zones and to connect with them and to share the gospel in everyday encounters. That's God's commission. That's what his desire is for us as we take the gospel around the world.